I'm Leah Carey, and this is Good Girls Talk About Sex. This is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. Before we get started, I want to tell you this. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with the things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. In today's episode, we'll meet Inez, a 32-year-old cisgender woman who describes herself as white, heterosexual, married, and monogamous. Inez is dealing with chronic illness and is in a primarily sexless marriage, even though she still finds her husband extremely sexy. I'm so pleased to introduce Inez. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to dive in. This is totally different than anything I've done before. So awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So, um, so let's just jump right in and I'd love to talk to you or hear you talk about your first memory of sexual pleasure. Oh gosh. Um, (laughs) Great question. So I think it's important to point out that I knew as a kid that masturbation felt good. Mm. Whether I recognize that as sexual pleasure um, is a totally different story. I probably didn't experience sexual pleasure, um, at least solo, until middle school. Oh, Um, that's a fascinating distinction. Yeah, so how how old were you and how did you discover masturbation? Oh gosh, I think I I had to have been like early middle school or excuse me, early elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's also important to note that I know that when I was a small child as far back as I can remember up until middle school when I moved across the country, I was sexually abused. And mm-hmm. so um, I know that like at night, um, a relative would come into my bedroom, um, at night and like put his hand, um, in my underwear. Mm-hmm. And I remember being afraid of that and that not feeling pleasurable at all. Cause I was scared. Yeah. And so I think it really started with me trying to see if I could make it feel good. Wow. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Thank you. Um, and it's interesting to me that you had enough um, sort of self-awareness to recognize at that age that you could change that story for yourself. Yeah. And I think it, it you know, it was not an instantaneous thing. It was more of a, like, I feel like things aren't okay you know, I, I'm told to be quiet, to keep this a secret. Um, and I felt really ashamed of myself for a really long time. Um, and so that really was a way of me at least subconsciously taking back that power 
that was robbed of me. Yeah. How old were you when that started? Um, it, it probably was like at least when I was a toddler, Oh, um, wow. as far back as I can remember. And it was ongoing for years. Oh. Yeah. Until summer going into fifth grade when I moved across the country. Yeah. And did you tell your parents? Uh, no, ironically enough. Um, so when I was an adult, I was, um, hospitalized for a suicide attempt and my sister, um, had actually told my dad about what happened to me as a kid Mm -hmm. when I was in the hospital. And I remember my dad coming to me in the ICU, um, because, you know, he was bewildered about like, why would you try to do this? And he, uh, was crying and he hugged me and he said, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, your sister told me what your brother did. And now my brother was an adult when I was a kid. So I think he was like late teens, early twenties when all of this was transpiring, um, the sexual abuse. Um, but I remember my dad like hugging me and holding me and saying that he was sorry for not protecting me. How did that feel? to have that conversation with your dad? To be honest, um, you know, you'd think I would have some sort of relief, but there really wasn't any because I felt so much grief Mm. over all of that. Like I didn't want my dad to hurt. Mm. Was that why you had not talked to your parents earlier? Yeah, I think for sure I didn't tell my dad that. My parents were divorced, um, but my mom has never been a maternal type. Mm-hmm. She, um, The way that I could describe her is a chameleon. Like She changes based on whoever she's with, mm-hmm. and even then she's not maternal at all, so I could never have like real conversations with her about the big things because she was always so dismissive of, of the little things with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that continues to this day, but yeah, definitely. I think protecting my dad, um, he and I have always been really close. Uh, um, and I cared for him until he died when I was 28. So half my life. Um, but for at least the last two years, he was on hospice in my home. And then for, you know, most of my adult life, he had lived with my husband and I, so we were really, really close. But yeah, a a lot of that was me just protecting him, I think. It's amazing to me. And I hear some echoes of this in my own experience with my mom of how children feel like we are responsible for protecting the big people who are actually the ones who are supposed to be protecting us. And yet as kids, we just don't understand that dynamic well enough to to put the responsibility where it should be, which is on the adults. Yeah. You know, and even as an adult, like I have three kids now and I sit here thinking, God, I hope I'm not fucking my kids up. Like, Mm. Oh, I shouldn't have said this. I should have said this this way. Um, You know, and I try my best to be like, you know, I I screwed up. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said this, but still it's like that kind of stuff is what keeps me up at night. Sure. So, well, let's go back to, you and um 
and talk about some other childhood stuff. Like what did you, aside from the abuse experience, what did you hear in your childhood home or school or church, wherever it might've been, what did you learn about appropriate quote unquote sexuality as a child? Oh, so I grew up in a Lutheran home. And for those of you who aren't really familiar with how that works, um, it's basically like Catholic light um, <laughs> is, is what they like to say. But for me, living in the Midwest, it was totally different than when I lived out in the Pacific Northwest. Midwest, it was like there was zero talk about any of that. Um, I definitely wasn't hearing anything at all from my parents. Um, and then when I lived out, in the Pacific Northwest is a little bit different. My stepdad uh, was a professor at a liberal uh, arts college and he was a cross-dresser. And so it was a totally different experience for me, but my mom still never had conversations with me. Everything I learned was in those school talks, you know, that they have the nurse come in and give. Yeah. <laughs> and internet because um, I'm 32. So I, you know, did enough Googling or whatever it was at Alta Vista, I think back then. Yeah. <laughs> I did enough of that back in my day. Um, and then really just conversations with friends. Like I remember the first time I heard about periods, I about lost my gourd. I'm like, we bleed? What? Out of where? <laughs> and yeah, I definitely didn't hear that from my mom. So something you mentioned before we started recording, you said something about a stripper name, and I want to go back and pick that up. So have you performed as a stripper in your life? Uh, yeah, so for a very short period of time, and that actually is a story in itself. So back when I was in high school, um, I'd say junior and senior year, I started participating in um, different like auditions and casting calls and in pageants. I was actually um, state finalist for several pageants. And um, I also belong to a lot of um, forums online where models and influencers could connect with brands and photographers to work together. And one day um, after I just graduated, I um, received a message about um, going out to DC for an online, um, I think at the time he, he called it like an online um, like web show or something. And, you know, thinking back, like I've tried to find the emails and I'm like, did I not see any red flags here? Like huh. maybe I was just so desperate as a Midwesterner who lives in a town of 1200 people to um, like get out and see the world. And I thought this was like a big break for me. Um, so I don't know if it was just before I turned 18 or just after, but I know it was like right around there. Cause my birthday's at the end of August and, um, it was at the end of the summer and I went to DC and turns out that it was an escort ring. And I was stuck there for a week performing for this guy um, working with lots of clients. And when I finally got out, um, I had sent, or no, I called my roommate back home and I said, here's what went down. This really wasn't like a TV show type thing. Um, you know, now I'm broke. 
I need help. And she was a stripper. And so when I got home, that's what I did is I was a stripper. And then about a month later, I ended up pregnant. Uh So that lasted a very short period of time. Did you end up keeping the pregnancy? At the time, like I had been so like in over my head with everything, like really tailspin. And, um, I was doing meth and Coke and smoking marijuana and here in the Midwest, like that's very illegal, all of it. Um, and I remember taking pregnancy test after pregnancy test and them being negative over and over and over again until January. Um, and then finally I took one, I walked in the Walmart bathroom with my boyfriend, um, waiting outside and I took pregnancy tests there and saw it was positive and, uh, came out of the bathroom. I looked at him and I said, yeah, it's, it's positive. And so I throw out my cigarettes as we're walking out and I've been sober since that day. And that was like 14 years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so I spent my entire pregnancy terrified that she would come out, um, deformed or handicapped in some Mm. way because I had been doing drugs Mm -hmm. and not just like marijuana, but hard drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, thank God she's perfect. And did the relationship last? So, um, I was with him. Uh, he moved in after she was born Then we got married. I think after three years together, had another baby, um, and then got divorced when she was two or three, my second child. Uh-huh. Um, but he was very, very manipulative, um, occasionally physically abusive, but um, always verbally and emotionally abusive. So, um, yeah, I had to get out of that. I'm glad that you were able to get out of it. Thank you. Yeah. So I know uh, that you are married now. So what is that story? How did that come to be? So I was actually in the middle of my divorce when I got this friend request on Facebook from this guy who was really good looking. And it wasn't unusual for me to get those types of friend requests because um, at the time I was um, into really into like health and fitness And I had lost 123 pounds. I was super, super fit. And um, so I got this friend request from this guy and he was local. I'm like, oh, cool. So he would message me and message me. And finally, like I would talk to him. And it took, I think, like it was 39 days, I think, for me to finally agree to go on a date with him. (laughs) Because, (laughs) I mean, nobody's counting, right? But (laughs) he, he was very persistent. And he was unlike any guy that I'd ever been with or talked to before because um, all of our conversations like centered around like religion and like family and stuff. And I was like, this is different. And um, so I finally decided to go on a date with him and he just totally swept me off my feet. And uh, we ended up getting engaged like eight months later, and then we got married on our one year anniversary together. So we moved wow. quick. Yeah, it was very, very quick. And in hindsight, looking back, I think I was so desperate for um, some semblance of like a happy relationship that, um, you know, I was super codependent. And I was probably codependent for a really, really long time. Um, 
And so looking back, I probably would not have ended up with him. Um, and we have struggled a lot in our marriage. However, um, things the last few years have been so much better. What if, what's the change? What shifted? It was about four, no, actually five years ago, um, our son was born and, um, you know, things were going okay, but then all of a sudden we didn't have conversations around just like all the things he was really interested in, which is like working out, fitness, religion, all, all of that. Um, and he actually had some type of responsibility. And so, um, knowing what I know from having worked in mental health facilities, it's like, Oh snap. Like you can't follow the most basic instructions I'm giving you. You have Asperger's. So I dragged him off to a psychologist. I'm like, he's got Asperger's. I know he does diagnose him. Sure enough. I'm like, wow, life makes sense now. Um, And I think after getting that diagnosis, um, I'm a lot like I stay out of my ego more often because I'm like, okay, he's not doing this to piss me off. He's not (laughs) doing these things because he's a jerk. It's, he just doesn't have a filter and I need to learn to work with him through that versus like flying off the handle. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've had a lot of weight fluctuations and when you met him, you were extremely fit. Um, so I assume that at some point during your relationship, you've had some of those fluctuations. Oh, yeah. How has that affected your sense of your body and your sense of sexuality in your relationship with him? Oh, great question. So I've always been very, um, I'd say very sexual when I feel good about myself and I feel good about myself when I'm fit. And, um, I don't necessarily have to be thin to feel that way. But like, if I've been working out for the last four months and I, you know, I've tightened up quite a bit, I feel stronger. I feel better about myself, uh, because of the health issues that I have. Um, but it also, I think just makes me feel like, okay, I got this now before my relationship with my husband, it wouldn't be that way. Like if I was overweight that I was like, nobody is getting near me. Mm -hmm. Um, but now like with him, I feel more like a a cat on the prowl, you know, (laughs) uh, really the best way I could describe it. It's just like, damn, I look good. Even though, you know, I might be like 60 pounds overweight, but Mm -hmm. I've been working out and I feel strong. I'm going to rock these curves. Yeah. 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 I love that. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. 
There is no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. And together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. So you mentioned that you've had some physical challenges. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? And again, how does that impact your ability to be sexual with your husband? I didn't get any of this diagnosed until probably nine years ago is, is when I first started seeing, um, I, I wouldn't say first started seeing symptoms, but, um, getting to the point where I'm like, okay, enough is enough. Like I have to be seen about these issues. Um, I was first diagnosed with narcolepsy, um, which is a sleep disorder. And I have narcolepsy with cataplexy. Um, it's not like it is in the movies for me. It's more like during any period of extreme emotion. So I could be out with my friends, like laughing a ton. And then I'll start to feel really, really weak and really, really tired and need to lay down or go to sleep. Um, which explains, you know, as a teenager, why, um, when I was out at parties and we were drinking, having fun, like I would just want to go to bed. And I thought, Oh, when I drink, I get tired. So I don't like drinking. So even to this day, um, unless my alcohol tastes like Kool-Aid, I'm not drinking it. (laughs) Um, and then about four years ago, I was at a Renaissance festival and we were doing archery and I did archery and I was really good at it. But the, the string part like clipped my elbow because of the way my elbows, like, um, it's like I'm double jointed. And so it got in the way. Um, and I just so happened to have a physical, like a couple days after that. And, uh, the doctor's like, Oh, that's not normal. Cause I had this nasty bruise, like the entire length of my forearm and, um, my, the upper part of my arm and elbow. And that's when we really kind of fell down that rabbit hole. Um, cause I was so like double jointed and flexible and turns out I have Ehlers-Danlos uh, syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. It took me 15 appointments at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota to get that diagnosis. Um, and because your body's like 80, 90% connective tissue, it literally impacts like every area of my life. So I also have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, which basically means like, 
um, if I were to stand up, the uh, blood will pool to my legs. And then my brain's like, uh oh, something's wrong. And it makes me feel like shit till I sit down or lay down. Uh huh. And, um, you know, a bunch of other things that come along with it. So, um, most of my days, uh, I feel miserable. Yeah. So it's a really, really painful condition and, um, there's not really any treatment or any cure for it. Like looking back, I know that God placed my husband with me because he's so fit and strong. He used to compete in bodybuilding competitions. And it's like on my days where I'm miserable, I can't get out of bed. Like he does all the legwork. Mm. Like he will run all the errands. Um, I haven't had to clean in seven years, which is amazing. <laughs> um, I highly recommend you finding somebody to do that for you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's really, um, it can be exhausting as far as like our sex life. Um, I'm so grateful that my husband could pick me up, move me around, be super strong. Um, and a lot of times I'm just a pillow princess and he doesn't mind. Uh huh. And do you enjoy that kind of sexual interaction? Is that satisfying to you? Um, I can't remember the last time that I ever felt, um, like sexually gratified, um, or really ever in any sexual partner I've ever had. And I think a lot of it has to do with just like all of the sexual trauma that I've been through. Um, it's a lot more transactional. Mm. Um, and you know, that, that might have to do with like the human trafficking thing, um, or the molestation, but like I've had so many experiences in life where, um, you know, I've been at a party and somebody who's over the age of 18 has taken advantage of me. So it's just very like, this isn't my body, it's theirs. And so I can't feel. Oh, I, I understand that so deeply. I mean, my history of trauma is very, very different from yours. But what sent me on this journey of healing that I've been through is that I was not able to feel sexual touch. I could feel, it's not like the nerve endings were problematic. Like I can feel, but as soon as the touch began to turn sexual, my body shut down completely. Mm. And um, it was very much a result of feeling like I didn't get to own my body and that, um, that I was just supposed to give it over to whoever was touching me because that was that was my part of the transaction. Just like you said, it was very transactional. What I wanted was cuddling. What I had to give up in order to get cuddling was sex. So I did it and I didn't feel anything. Yeah. That's such a great way to look at it too. And you know, it's funny. You'd think that because I felt this way, the way that you described that I would like totally avoid sex and um, you know, I was super promiscuous from the moment I lost my virginity until I settled down with my husband. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was so much chasing that feeling of security that I'll never get. Yeah. So are there types of sexual touch that you enjoy? Um, no, there, there really isn't. Um, maybe, uh, if my husband were to like kiss my neck, I might enjoy that, but he knows 
um, like you can't undo my pants. You can't stick your hand down my pants. I have to take them off for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's always like being hyper aware. Yeah. To be honest, it really kind of sucks. And how is he with that? How does he respond to that? Um, you know, because of his Asperger's, I think he probably responds to it better than any other like alpha male would. Mm-hmm. Um, just because people with Asperger's tend not to be very like emotional and connected anyway. So um, I think transactional for him works out just fine. And is he able to have sexual pleasure when he understands that it, it's not providing that to you? Yeah. And, you know, over the years I've noticed that like he'll hardly last at all, like a minute maybe. And we went to see his psychologist that diagnosed him with Asperger's and he says, well, it probably has to do a lot with like anxiety and stuff. And so I think there is an element of him wanting to perform. Um, and then him not being able to give me that pleasure that makes him last like hardly at all. Um, so that's kind of disappointing. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It's like um, part of me wishes that, I would get pleasure, but then also part of me is like relieved, like, oh, great, you know, it's over. Yeah. Oh, I so understand that. It's like, oh, I want him to have the pleasure, so I want him to last. But if it's really quick, then it's over and I don't have to endure this anymore. Right. Exactly. And, um, you know, he and I probably haven't had sex in like four months because we did have an incident where. I think my husband had been drinking and he normally does not drink just because alcoholism runs in his family. And one night he did have a couple of beers and he was in the mood and I was not. And um, like, he's not on social media. He's not, um, he doesn't watch the news or anything. So he's not aware of like how prevalent like the me too movement is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think knowing, I don't want to say knowing like consent But, um, there was a point where like, I kept telling him no, no. And he was continuing to proceed and like, I would pull my underwear up and he would keep pulling it down. And this probably went on for like five minutes, um, you know, 15 to 20 times. Then finally, like I like kicked him off. And I said, when I say no, I mean, no. And of course he feels terrible about it now that like I've explained it to him in detail, like here's my history. Like you already know the history, but here's how these two connect and why what you did is not okay. Um, so it's been really difficult for me to even think of him in that capacity. Mm. Um, even though I think he's the most gorgeous man on the planet. Um, and I certainly know he did not mean to hurt me in any way. Um, I don't think he realized that, you know, this was non-consensual. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. What do you think it might take for you to get back to that place with him? I I assume you don't want to have a sexless marriage. Right. Yeah. Um, That's a really good question. It's something I've actually thought about a bit. Um, I think a lot of it really just has to do with like my mood. Like if I feel like I look good, then my desire goes up. And so, um, my losing weight, my getting fit again. Yeah. And 
that's the plan anyway. But we always say, oh, we'll start Monday. We'll start Monday. (laughs) That's interesting, though, because it sounds like it was an action on his part that caused you to back off. And you're taking the responsibility for getting yourself to a place where you're okay again. Yeah. In order to feel the desire again. Yeah, that that's a funny connection because, you know, he did these things and he's trying to make amends and working at trying to repair that. But I think for me, like I am so like turned off Mm -hmm. that it will have to take me doing something to feel that desire. Interesting. Because I don't know what it's like to be in control of my own body, my own desires. I don't know what it's like to feel safe. And so desiring something that you aren't aware of, um, it's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Do you masturbate? Um, occasionally. And is that pleasurable for you? Um, usually lasts like all but five minutes and it's like very transactional. It's more like a release. Wow. I want so much for you to be able to feel the fullness of of your body and your sexuality. I, I so relate to what you're saying about it feeling transactional and having done my own journey to move to the other side of that. And that's not to say it doesn't still sometimes feel transactional because it absolutely sometimes does, but there's now a sense for me of having, um, like I, I, I own my body now and I choose who I share it with. And, and that brings me pleasure. And, and I want so much for you to experience that. Thank you. I received that. Yeah. Mm. Um, have you ever felt any sexual urges that confused you? I think so. Um, and I think that this goes back to a meme that I saw Jenna, Jenna Marbles do, where she's, where she's talking about some attractive female saying, I don't know whether or not I want to be her or be in her. Sometimes I feel the same way where I'm like, wow, I just want to like, look at you. Can you just like stand there and maybe like turn around because you are so visually appealing to me Yeah, that like, it's, it's almost like looking at like, um, a beautiful painting or a magnificent, um, sunset or something. It's just like, wow, you're just in awe that this could be created. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that I've tried to articulate to my oldest daughter who has come out to me as being bisexual. And because she's 13, it's like, I'm trying to navigate like, Oh my gosh, like this isn't a conversation I've ever had with anybody, let alone like my mom. Like, how do I do this? Well, you and I can keep talking when we get off the phone. Cause I'm bisexual and it's something I'm perfectly happy to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> the way that that came about was I think, she had forgotten to sign out of her Pinterest account on my phone once when she was messing around with it. And I saw like all of these pins saved about like gay pride and um, all of this stuff. And I'm like, why would this be showing up? And I'm like, Oh snap, I'm in my daughter's account. 
And so I'm like looking and I'm like, oh my gosh, I really need to have a conversation with her because a lot like my mom, like I, you know, have talked about like periods and stuff, which my mom didn't do, but um, I, I know I did not want to repeat the same thing my mom did. And I wanted to have a conversation. I just didn't know how to do it. And so um, like I showed her and I'm like, is there anything you want to talk about? And of course she like totally shut down and um, I'm like, snap, I'm really screwing this up. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I did recover by saying, Hey, you know, there's a, there's a pride fest coming up. And um, so I took her to pride fest and I took her, my middle child and there's this booth that had all of these little pins that you can buy. And I found a pin that said ally on it. Mm. And I showed my daughter um, after I purchased it, I'm like, I'm going to wear this. And I handed her the bisexual one and she, she wore it. And it was just like, we kind of had like this mutual understanding um, where really words didn't need to be said. Oh, that's so lovely. That I feel like when you say you you feel like you really messed up the earlier conversation, the fact that you were willing to have the conversation means that you didn't mess it up. You know, like maybe it didn't go exactly the way you wanted it to, but the fact that you're willing to show up and do those things with her is what she'll remember. When I came out to my mom as bisexual and she and I were super, super close. And I remember saying to her, would you sort of P flag was, was the only real support option at the time. And they said, would you go to a P flag meeting with me? And her response to me was, I don't feel like I need that. And I was like, but mom, I need that. Mm. I need to know that you're not ashamed. I need to know that, that you're okay with this. And it was something that ultimately we never ended up doing together but, and I don't, you know, I don't feel like she terribly wronged me <laughs> in that. But I do, when I hear other parents talk about like, oh, I didn't get this conversation exactly the way I wanted it to. I'm like, if you're willing to show up, you are doing what is necessary. And and that's what your kid will And I receive that, you know, I, I certainly am not the perfect parent by any means. I screw up every day, but that's one thing. I really try hard to get right. Um, You know, I I don't totally understand it all, but I've joined committees and all of this stuff so that way I can be a better ally and help advocate um, for her and others like her. I love it. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free. And one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post. And if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. 
send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you. Whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener, I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Before we finish up, let's do the quick five. Five quick questions we'd usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you swallow or not? Oh, my poor husband. No, when I, when I do, um, I don't swallow. He takes a lot of supplements, and so it's like toxic sludge. Oh, my God. It's it's awful. Oh wow! So you're willing to give him blowjobs as long as is it doesn't have to. Oh yeah, it's like you could un- unleash on my boobs or something, yeah. but I'm not swallowing that <laughs> mess. Wow, I never thought about that. What's the kinkiest thing you enjoy? I'm a pretty vanilla person. Um, although I have recently discovered that I really get turned on by being dominant and being dominated. Um, and like, I always tell my husband, like, pretend I'm Hulk and let me like throw you up against the wall. Like, I don't want to have sex with you. Just let me like throw you and just pretend that I'm really, really strong. And like, that totally turns me on. But like, in a way that like, that is my sexual gratification, even though it's not like we're having sex because there's a whole um, community of people for whom the dominant submissive thing is a play that they really enjoy. And it does not culminate in sex. It is sexual without (laughs) it culminating in sex. Yeah. So thank you. (laughs) You are not alone in that. That's a thing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Assuming that your husband performs oral sex on you, how do you feel about the smell, taste, or feeling of your own juices if he kisses you after oral sex? I actually hate oral sex. How do you feel when a partner tells you what they like or what they want? Um, I think that I'm kind of like, I don't give a fuck what you want, like, this is about me because I know you're going to get off. I won't get off. Mm. 
So let's focus on me. Uh, do you tend to orgasm quickly or take a long time? Um, well, I've never ever orgasm with a partner mm -hmm. um, ever. But um, when solo, I probably take longer than average. What do you think average is? Um, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. So it takes you what, like 20? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, I don't think that that's, I mean, I think there are people all over the spectrum, but I don't think that that's unusual. Okay. You said you haven't ever had an orgasm with a partner. Does that include when you're touching your yourself? Like you mentioned that sometimes you'll touch yourself while your husband kisses you. Oh, yeah. So it's rare if I do climax during that period. So I have when I'm the one controlling yeah. it. Um, but definitely never, ever from penetration. Like there has to be clitoral stimulation. Again, something that is totally normal. I'm the same way. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, I've, uh, with my current partner, we have PIV, penis and vagina sex sometimes, but it's not our primary thing um, because we both have other ways we enjoy getting off and I don't get off um, during PIV sex at all. That's yeah. actually not abnormal at all. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Mm. <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate because there's a cultural narrative that that's the way it's supposed to be. Right. Right. You, you and I said this, you know, before we started talking, but I'm really glad that you are opening up a platform for these conversations because um, particularly me, like living in the middle of nowhere, like nobody talks about this unless it's at like a passion party, uh, which I've had and um, ironically had the highest sales for this gal, uh, which was awesome. I got a lot of product, but <laughs> yeah, it's just... I'm really glad that we can take this mainstream and change that narrative. Well, thank you so much. I am just in awe of how, how you've shown up today and how willing you have been to just share all of the really, really hard stuff. So thank you so much for doing this. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. 
Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.